Hello and welcome to the Tech Turd Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, just a quick note about today's podcast. Uh, in the recording that you're about to hear all about the EU's new DSA regulation, it was mentioned a few times that uh, certain rules in the DSA do not apply to companies with fewer than 250 employees. However, after the recording was over, uh, Daphne realized that the definition for small platforms are actually those with fewer than 50 employees, and that there's also a definition for micro enterprises, which are those with fewer than 10 employees. So there are all sorts of very confusing and complex rules. Uh, and so those that are fewer than 250 employees, which are mentioned a few times in the podcast, are actually designated as medium enterprises. Uh, none of this really impacts the wider discussion, but we wanted to make sure that we were accurate there. So just recognize that uh, in the podcast, when we're talking about fewer than 250 employees, sometimes it's actually much lower than that. And uh, with that, we'll get on with the rest of the podcast. Before we get started, uh, long-term podcast listeners know that we try to release a new podcast every week, but don't always succeed at that, uh, mainly because I get too busy to record new ones. Uh, well, just as a quick heads up, we probably will not be having uh, the podcast for a few weeks after this one, uh, as the next month is kind of crazy, but we should pick up again either at the very end of November or in early December. So just giving listeners a little heads up, as opposed to usual, where we just disappear for a few weeks. Anyways, uh, on to today's podcast. Uh, we talk a lot about different regulations on TechDirt, and there's a huge one that is on the horizon, which is that the EU has basically decided that it is going to set entirely new rules for how much of the internet works um, with two uh, major regulatory bundles. There's the Digital Services Act, or the DSA, and the Digital Markets Act, or DMA. Uh, both of these are, in theory, ways of modernizing internet regulations in a somewhat comprehensive manner, or at least that's what they say. Um, I followed some of what was happening with both of these, and I've, uh, I, I kind of have to admit that with everything else going on, it's been more difficult to keep up uh, with the latest, uh, even as they may be some of the most important regulations regarding the future of the internet itself. So just recently, the DSA took a big step forward after the European Council gave its final approval for it. And apparently that means it will go into effect in January of 2024. So a little bit more than a year. Of course, in asking around to try and get a better handle on what this all means, I keep getting told very different things. Uh, and I was told that even though the DSA has been approved uh, and is going going into effect in a little over a year and certain services already need to be preparing for it, it's still not entirely known what 
it actually means or what it will look like in practice, which seems a little bit confusing to me. And when I am confused about EU internet laws, uh, I turn to my two favorite experts on the subject uh, who I've had on the podcast before. We have Daphne Keller from Stanford and Emma Lonzo from the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, and we had both of you together on the podcast a few years ago, pre-pandemic, I believe, uh, to talk about the EU terrorist directive. Uh, but now we're going to talk about the DSA. So both of you, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, uh, Emma, I'm going to start with you uh, and ask you to explain what what is the DSA uh, and, and kind of where it stands right now. I gave that sort of, you know, brief intro of what that it's it, it got approved and, and in theory is going into effect. But can you just give a kind of quick overview on what it is? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is a lot going on in the DSA. Um, but key things to understand are that the Digital Services Act is the European Union's effort to update the intermediary liability law um, and re uh, kind of regulations of how online intermediaries are responsible or not for the content that their users post. Um, the EU's first kind of effort at intermediary liability regulation was the e-commerce directive. Um, this was passed in the year 2000 and has been you know, interpreted by European courts and applied for the past couple of decades. Um, but the EU really thought there was you know, a lot of things that we've heard on, on both sides of the Atlantic. A lot has changed about the internet. A lot has changed about the kinds of um, problems and challenges that people see around uh, regulation of online speech. And so the DSA, the Digital Services Act, is the European answer to what to do about the internet today. Um, and it it covers a lot of different things. I, my shorthand is every idea you've heard in the past couple years about what we might do about online intermediaries and speech is probably somewhere in the DSA. Um, it it takes forward the core part of the e-commerce directive around like what is the liability for different kinds of online intermediaries, um, mere conduits, caching providers, hosting providers. It takes those categories forward and takes roughly the same ideas around a kind of notice and action liability safe harbor. So if you gain notice in different ways um, that illegal content is on your service, then depending on what kind of service you are, you have a different set of actions that you need to take or kind of responsibilities you have in order to stay in that liability safe harbor. Um, it takes forward things like the uh, clarification that there's no obligation to monitor user communications at, to, in order to preserve a safe harbor. And so there's this sort of core that looks very similar to what the EU law has been um, ever since. But there's a lot more around this whole question of illegal content, which we can dig into ideas about, um, you know, having obligations that companies respond to notices from trusted flaggers uh, that might be nonprofit organizations or potentially law enforcement organizations that send along notices of apparently illegal content to intermediaries. Um, clarification that notices could come from pretty much anybody about potentially illegal content, that they don't have to come just from a court or some other kind of entity that is empowered to actually say this speech is illegal. In addition to all of these different regulations around illegal content, there's also a lot of regulation of companies' terms of service and kind of how requirements the companies um, and different online services uh, articulate their rules um, that they have uh, they give a statement of reasons to people about 
what why their content is coming down or why their accounts are being restricted um, under those terms of service. Uh, a variety of transparency obligations that apply to kind of all online services. And then another feature of the DSA is that there are sort of increasing amounts of obligations and responsibilities for different sorts of services. So some provisions apply to all intermediaries, you know, content host, caching providers, host, uh, mere conduits, all of them. Some apply just to content hosts, some apply to this new category of online platforms. And then there's a even newer category of VLOPs, very large online platforms. Um, and they have a really particular set of regulations around assessing the systemic risks that their platforms might create. Um, there's obligations around kind of independent, those companies and services undergoing independent audits, um, articulating what kind of risks that they foresee in their platforms and taking steps to mitigate those risks. Um, so it, it, that piece, which we can dig into is a really kind of different idea of thinking about how to regulate some part of um, online services than, than we've really seen before. There's a bunch of other stuff in it too. Um, there's regulations around online ads and recommender systems, um, a whole section on kind of creating codes of conduct around things that the DSA doesn't already address. Um, but just one key kind of feature to understand about the, the DSA is that it is a regulation. So different from the e-commerce directive, which was that predecessor law from 20-ish years ago, um, the, the directive had to be implemented in the different member states. And there was a lot of potential sort of variation in how member states exactly apply the law. Um, part of the reason the DSA was uh, introduced and adopted as a regulation was to make it that kind of pan-European law or pan-EU law um, that really is supposed to operate in the same way in all of the different member companies and kind of be that source of law coming right from the top of the EU. So the goal was harmonization um, and ensuring that different intermediaries have and users and, and kind of EU citizens have the same experience sort of throughout the union. Um, but there are a lot of different moving pieces about the regulation that still have to be worked out exactly what they mean. So a little bit of a question mark of just how coherent and harmonized and internally consistent of a regulation this is going to actually end up being. And I, I might add maybe just zooming yeah. out a little bit, you know, I tend to think of the DSA as one of three big regulations occupying the three big major sets of policy questions around platforms. So there's the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation for Privacy. There's the Digital Markets Act, which is coming into effect on roughly the same timeline as the DSA for competition, and there's the DSA for content issues. But then again, there are also all of these other EU-level laws around platforms and content, including the terrorist content regulation and the copyright directive and this uh, pending media freedom law and the um, audiovisual media services directive, which affects video hosts. So there actually are all these other sources of law overlapping with the DSA. And, and, and the online political ads file <laughs> and the child sexual abuse file. Like there's the post-DSA, we've seen multiple other kind of content regulatory proposals and processes start up. So just plus one to Daphne's point, there are <laughs> There are lots of sources of so, law. Yeah. So, so that actually ra raises a question that I, I was going to ask, and I, was, I, I think I was going to ask it later in this discussion, but it, this, uh, these points sort of make me think we should be up front, which is um, 
is there is there concern that that these different rules and regulations are going to conflict with one another? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I think that is a concern that that some platforms were raising about you know not knowing which of overlapping rules they're supposed to follow. But I think it, as a um, if you think of it as a, a question of like EU institutional power, mm-hmm. there are all these questions about who is supposed to be the enforcer, and there's a lot of frustration in Brussels uh, thinking that the Irish enforcers, uh, who are the relevant enforcers for some laws, because uh, big platforms have their place of EU establishment there, you know, a sense that uh, the rest of the countries wish that that Ireland would enforce the GDPR more aggressively, right. for example. And so part of what's going on in the DSA is pulling more power to the center, to the commission to be the enforcer. But at the same time, there, uh, you know, there's a lot of desire for more power within each of the member states with some sort of new authorities that they're going to set up. So there's not just a question of which law applies. There's also a question of which of these numerous potential enforcers gets to tell platforms what to do about what subject. Right. And, and I mean, just, Emma, did you? Oh yeah. Just to point a, um, one example of a conflict that we've already actually seen come up, um, actually coming from the GDPR, the general data protection regulation. Uh, it's part of why Europe right now, the EU right now is focused on the, um, child sexual abuse regulation that they're considering because, a number of service providers when the GDPR rolled out and had, you know, significant restrictions on what would a legitimate kind of processing of user data be for online services, felt very concerned that that meant that the proactive scanning and filtering that services were routinely doing to try to look for known examples of child sexual abuse material could actually be in conflict with the GDPR. Mm. And so that required getting like a specific derogation from the GDPR to cover, you know, and, and establish as a matter of like temporary law that services were still encouraged to keep doing that um, kind of voluntary CSAM scanning. Right. Uh, but it also meant that behind this child sexual abuse file is the this very much the sense of they need to pass something soon that really lays out exactly under the law what <laughs> it's turned now from not just what kind of voluntary filtering our services allowed to do as a matter of privacy regulation, but in fact, what kind of filtering should they maybe be required to do under this new law? So the laws are sort of fitting together in um, potentially conflicting ways. And then what we're seeing in some of the efforts to resolve those conflicts is yet another opportunity to introduce ideas about kind of scanning and filtering um, and monitoring of different kinds of content. So it's, it's very much an evolving conversation. Right. I mean, it's 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 kind of it's weird to me in that, you know, like I, I think about this. Obviously, I spend a lot more time with the U.S. context, and and we see just sort of like you know a whole bunch of different individual regulations tossed out by whichever politician wants to toss out whichever regulation. And and one of my issues is always how like these regulations often are in direct conflict with one another, and and nobody's sort of and you know you have different committees, and nobody's ever thinking through sort of more comprehensively what how do these pieces fit together. And I thought. Going into this conversation, even, you know, as of like 10 minutes ago, I thought part of the idea behind the DSA was to have that sort of comprehensive look at things as opposed to these sort of individual, just this person brings up this, this person brings up that. And already you're telling me that that's not how this is working. (laughs) 
Already that is not how this is working. I, I, I have another example that I think has not had much attention okay. yet, and it might be reconcilable, but it's it's really interesting to me. So um, part of the thrust of the DSA is the idea that platforms have not been honoring users' rights enough by doing things like telling them when platforms are taking their content down and giving them an opportunity to appeal that decision. And so one big requirement of the DSA is that when platforms remove user content uh, or even demote user content under their terms of service uh, or the law, they let the users know and give them an opportunity to appeal, which is something that a lot of civil society groups have been asking mm -hmm. for for a long time. Meanwhile, uh, for the right to be forgotten, which is a right supported by the General Data Protection Regulation, um, there is still guidance in place. And there has been a major court ruling out of uh, Sweden, I believe, saying Google cannot tell webmasters right. when it delists them under the right to be forgotten outside of sort of un unusual circumstances. And so, you know, the exact same claim from a person saying, you know, this, this, someone on the internet is talking about me in a way that I don't like, if they can frame it as a right to be forgotten claim, then maybe they're in this world where the the person whose speech is coming down doesn't know. Uh, but if they frame it as a defamation claim or some other kind of claim, then we're in DSA land and definitely the person who's speaking does get to know <laughs> and have an opportunity to appeal it. You could thread the needle and insist that right to be forgotten is only for search engines, although I'm not sure that that's how the actual platforms have been interpreting it. Um, but conceptually, in terms of what we think are the rights of accusers and accused in a situation like that, it's very divergent approaches. That's absolutely fascinating to me, <laughs> where, where it's like, I mean, there's. I, I could make the argument that the, the complete opposite of the way it is set up is the way it should be set up. Or like, right to be forgotten, you should tell the platform that those things are being down, and and in other kinds of content moderation, you you shouldn't necessarily, um, you know, which is be, like, I mean, all of these are so context dependent that like, you know, like so I'm just thinking like again like just from my own standpoint, like the, the most content that I need to take down off of tech dirt is spam, right? Should I need to notify every spammer that I'm removing their spam? I don't, I don't think so personally, <laughs> but I recognize that I am not a, a, a VLOP. I am not a very large provider, but does, does that only apply to, to the VLOPs or does that apply to everybody in terms of notification of takedowns or do you, that applies to everyone, I think, except for micro and small. So if you're below 250 employees and 10 million euros annual turnover, I think you're carved out of right. that one. But mo most of these um, notice and action procedural obligations are definitely not just for the VLOPs. Um, and right. some of them apply to platforms, no matter how small they are. And some of them apply, uh, you know, only when you hit 250 employees. Um, but I mean, think that that means most platforms any of us have ever heard of right. have all of these procedural obligations. Right. And, and I, I mean that like, so, again, like there's, there's all different thoughts going through my head. Right. So like, you know, just focusing on the, the, like, the notification to the users that their content is is being taken down in some way, like that, I can see where the instinct comes for that, 
Um, but I can also see where that itself, you know, there are scenarios where that doesn't make sense. Um, and, and generally speaking, when you're dealing with malicious actors or bad actors and you're trying to, you know, come up with, with policies and enforcement um, to stop malicious actors, in which case informing them often is counterproductive. Um, you know, some of some of the actions that need to be taken kind of need to be obscured in order to stop the malicious actor from being malicious. I mean, is there any sort of recognition of that or any sort of provision for, for the more malicious actors? Well, for, so, for the spam example, I believe the answer is you don't have to notify them if you're taking down, quote unquote, deceptive, high volume commercial content. But I think they still have a right of appeal if they figure it out, because I think I don't, don't quote me on this, but I think that carve out wound up in one of the articles, but not the other. Right. And and as I mean, Mike, I don't know what kind of spam that you get on TechDirt, but does it meet like the high volume sense of, you know, is it deceptive? Is it commercial? Is it high volume? Currently, the exception says that the content needs to be all three of those things. Um, and it really <laughs> seems more like it has like email um, spam in right. mind where you have that general sense that someone's sending out 10,000 of the same messages or something. Right. Um, if it's one really dedicated jerk who's just adding a link to something after every comment, um, it's, I think, a big takeaway from all of this because there's there are so many questions like this throughout most of the provisions in the DSA of like, wait, what does this actually mean? How is this actually going to apply? And that is a big part of the project of the next 14 months, you know, between now and that January 1st, 2024 enforcement date, um, there is going to be a whole process of the commission developing the implementing regulations and also these things called delegated acts, which are kind of further quasi legislative, you could think of it sort of like a rulemaking, if you're familiar with the US sort of FTC and FCC processes, where more specificity is coming. Um, and there will be kind of more opportunity to weigh in for and hopefully get feedback in from civil society groups from experts who understand how online services actually run and actually operate, to try to get closer to an idea of what are these rules? What would an actual feasible interpretation of the legislative text mean? Um, but that's a lot of work to do in the next 14 months. And there are, you know, 80 some provisions in the DSA and probably at least 50 of the articles need significant further interpretation and description of what, what is actually required as a practical matter in the day-to-day -day operation. If you're a small hosting service who has now kind of 15 or 16 new legal obligations under this law. Um, so a lot of work to be done. And I, I think we can also assume that on January 1st, 2024, we're not going to, we'll have, I hope we have a clearer idea of what good faith compliance with the law looks like. Um, but I think a lot of these questions will continue to get developed probably in litigation and other rulemaking and advice from the commission or the new digital service coordinators in the coming years. So it, it may be, several years before we really feel like we know exactly what the DSA means in practice for all the different kinds of services that it covers. And, and of course, every opportunity for clarification and interpretation is also an opportunity for mischief <laughs> yes. or an opportunity for the exact same fights that 
you know, supposedly were settled in the legislative process to be reopened. And so there's kind of a war of attrition feeling here where whoever can send the most lobbyists the most consistently for the longest period of time uh, might wind up with rules that favor them, even if that's not the set of rules that were finalized through the legislative process. So, I mean, that seems very frustrating to me. I mean, like, I, I understand that there are, you know, even in the U.S. context, we have laws that then have rulemaking that 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 goes along with it. Um, but it it feels weird to me that we have this law that is coming into effect in in a year that is a major major shift in how the internet will operate, and yet. We have no idea exactly how it's all going to work. And there are all of these questions and those things might get settled. And there's like this looming deadline. I mean, just from the standpoint of the companies themselves, what, what are the, I mean, beyond sending more and more lobbyists to Brussels to try and sort this out, like what are, what are they supposed to be doing? So it's interesting. I think, um, a lo- so a lot of the momentum and the motivation for the the DSA was very clearly the European Union and governments, you know, in member states across the EU, really wanting to exert some control over tech companies. Right? It's it's part of the tech lash. It's definitely part of that the long running transatlantic tensions between U.S. headquartered tech companies and the EU as a large and powerful political and economic market. Um, that they operate in. And, you know, we've heard for for years, frustrations and concerns and like some really genuine frustrations about, you know, law enforcement across European member states um, saying, you know, we have very legitimate things that we want to investigate or issues that we really want to address on behalf of our citizens. And we just can't even find a person at these companies to talk to. And so that, like, there's a lot fueling this. There's also, I'm sure, tons of bad faith fueling it, but there there's some really legitimate and genuine um, concerns of policymakers in the EU that the rights of EU citizens were not being respected by the tech companies and they needed to be brought to heel. But in implementing this regulation that is so technical and so extensive and gets into so many different pieces of how these different services work, like I know that all the major tech companies are already figuring out what their DSA compliance strategy is. They are writing out thorough plans for what, how are they going to interpret these different articles? What are they going to push as the logical interpretation, the things to provide? And I would not be surprised if a lot of what those multi-billion dollar companies are figuring out right now ends up becoming kind of by default, because it's, it's the best idea anybody has of what some of this implementation is really going to look like. So we might be going into a situation where even though the EU was acting from this desire of really kind of bringing these companies under control of some sort, that the ultimate rules end up being very heavily influenced and even just sort of written by um, by actors from these same companies because they're the ones that actually have the in-depth knowledge and really significant incentives to figure out what this looks like and to make it something that's like feasible for them as businesses and, and something that they can live with. I think for for companies gearing up to comply, this is a little bit like gearing up to comply with the GDPR. You know, it is taking what was a smaller sort of compliance function in trust and safety and content moderation 
and building it out to this much more standardized, much more extensive function within the company. And in fact, for the the largest platforms, the DSA actually requires that they have a new division and new officers within the company in charge of this new compliance function. Um, And so, you know, it's not, I think, as pervasive in the infrastructure of how the technology works as the DS, as the GDPR sometimes was for for logging and and record keeping. Um, But it is comparably bringing a sort of regulatory standardization to bear in a way that requires a lot of planning for. I, I will defend a little bit the like indeterminacy of the DSA because I think like every facet, almost every facet of human behavior has moved online. Every way that humans are good and bad and delightful and horrible to each other, there's an online equivalent. And we've been asking platforms to govern it. And now lawmakers are telling platforms how to govern every facet of human behavior. And like, it's hard to write up the law for that. It turns out that, um, you know, you, you couldn't write all of that down even if you tried. I, I invoke a fair amount this this Jorge Luis Borges story about an emperor who directs that his cartographers make a map the size of the entire territory <laughs> of the empire. Uh, and eventually it's like lying in tattered rags superimposed over, over the terrain. Um, but that's kind of what the DSA is trying to do. And a lot of these laws are trying to do both in the um, content moderation rules of like, you have to moderate all the content and you have to get it right. And the transparency rules. And then you have to explain exactly what you did in sufficient detail that everyone can understand it. Um, but but you're doing this for every single thing that humans do on the internet. And, you know, that's that's big. And there's probably a mathematical theorem <laughs> about why it's impossible. <laughs> well, and I mean, Daphne, you had said earlier, um, you know, that the DSA really does stand for a just genuinely different relationship, especially between the very large online platforms and regulators. But I think in general, between sort of the role of a regulator like the commission or the digital services coordinators that'll be across the different member states, there there's a world in which this indeterminacy of the law is right. It's like, it's good in some respects, because if, if we expected them to write down to every jot and tittle, like exactly how these platforms should operate, they would almost certainly get it wrong. And that would be really restrictive and get out of date very quickly. All of those good reasons, um, not to, not to approach legislation like that. Um, and if the regulators approach it with, you know, not from a kind of gotcha place or not from a, like looking for the slightest hint of, legal violation to come crashing down on a different service. Um, But instead in a like, okay, guys, we're in this together. We've got to figure out what do these regulations mean? What is actually legitimate, fair, just in different circumstances? There is more opportunity, I think, for just that, that wholly different sort of relationship to emerge and for regulators in general, not just in the EU, but probably worldwide, to learn more about how online content hosting and content moderation actually works and what it means, um, and to try to create a system where what they're looking for are the really extreme circumstances or the really, like, where there's just a major failure of an online service to respect users' rights or to deal with some kind of illegal content. That's, like, the Pollyannish, you know, optimistic view of, of how this could turn out. And I think what we're feeling right now is it's not clear like which direction it's going to go. Is it going to go off in that like everyone is actually coming to the table and operating in faith? 
is it going to go the directions of online intermediaries when faced with a lot of vagueness and indeterminacy, just start proact like preemptively cracking down on a lot of different kinds of speech so that they don't, you know, risk ending up on the bad side of a cranky regulator who doesn't want to hold hands and figure it out together and who wants to just get a good headline about bringing an enforcement action against platform X. Um, it's, you know, it, I think there are legitimate arguments for either potential future. Um, and it's going to be really important in this kind of implementation and, and lead up phase to the law coming into enforcement to help underscore to the commission, to all these different regulators that the wrong approach to enforcement here could have like catastrophic consequences across the industry. I agree. I mean, I, I'll be a little bit team Pollyanna um, <clears throat> and say, like, I think that Americans and especially American lawyers look at regulations like this and we think this is this is only a gotcha. Like this is terrible because it's impossible to know how to comply and then you'll get in trouble. And, you know, and I think Europeans often are annoyed by that reaction uh, from Americans and their position is like, our regulators are going to be reasonable. Why are you expecting them to behave in this unreasonable, difficult way? Um, and, you know, I think both sides are a little bit right, but particularly when it comes to how regulators will enforce this against smaller platforms who haven't, you know, annoyed them, <laughs> you know, haven't proven intransigent in previous regulatory battles the way that the giant incumbents maybe have. I, I, I don't think we should be anticipating some kind of terrible crackdown or giant penalties. Um, you know, I, I think that European DSA boosters are probably right to expect a fair amount of like reasonableness, leniency, perhaps complete under enforcement or lack of enforcement anyway, uh, for a lot of the smaller actors. Is, is, is some of this like, I mean, is it basically, I'm sure this is not the, the direct intent, but, but does this play out in the way that, um, you know, having all of these rules that are effectively impossible to directly comply with, because there's just sort of confusion over how it all works, that, that it's really all sort of set up so that when the companies do something bad, that everyone just sort of recognizes this is bad, that there's something that, that can be pointed to and said, well, this is what you violated, and therefore we're going to punish you. Is is that like? I mean, it almost sounds like that. That's kind of the framing here. Like, you know, if it's if it's not like intentional badness, then you have the setup where the regulators can come in and say, "Hey, you guys could kind of fix this," and then you have that sort of like friendly regulator sort of setup. But then if the companies do something that everybody's decided is just absolutely horrible, like just you know uh, destroying democracy or whatever, then then the regulators can come in and 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 hit them for it. Is that is is that how this plays out? I think so kind of to Emma's point it it really depends on the how the dynamic works out or the attitude right. that the the parties including the regulators bring to this because the same rules that could work the way you just described also could be the yep. rules that say no matter what you did it's never good yep. enough you are always falling short you know to to the platforms um and you know well, I, I hope well, it works well, the way that I mean, you described so, it that's that's my concern right because then it's, it's entirely dependent on sort of the attitude of the regulators in question and those people can change over time too and and there can be different motivations and and there are times you know where for example it feels like european regulators are maybe mad at american companies for being american <laughs> And maybe supportive of European companies for being European, and and it feels like this is a tool that could really be abused 
Uh, not not saying that it will be, but that it certainly could be, right? I mean, I think that there is always the potential for regulation, especially less than crystal clear regulation to be abused in that way. Um, I would also point to, you know, in Europe, it's not as much as we've been talking about the regulators, it's not just the regulators, there are also the courts. Um, And so, you know, the Court of Justice of the European Union would have the ability to, um, you know, do interpretations of EU statutory law and include I, I'm going to be vague on this, Daphne, you correct me if I get this wrong. Uh, they can also bring in considerations of how those statutory, um, the statutory law of the EU affects human rights. And then there is also the European Court of Human Rights that applies the European Convention on Human Rights, um, including in how European regulation kind of plays out for, for individuals' rights. So if there are things that um, either seem, you know, totally off base or are just like too arbitrary um, or not really tied into the the legality, the kind of what is written down in the law and that are just inconsistent with, you know, international human rights standards for what acceptable legislation and regulation looks like. There are backstops of the courts um, at the, the European level that, you know, that it's never great when you're like, well, maybe the courts will ultimately support the fundamental rights and and that's all we have to hang our hats on. Um, but there is, that is also a kind of a pressure on the regulators, like on the commission, on the other regulators right. who will be there. They, they also know that their behavior and their activity is ultimately reviewable by courts, at least in certain contexts. And, and um, so one other element of this, like, you know, there is this feeling that certainly like, you know, obviously and we've seen this with the gdpr kind of like it is not as much as it you know is a is a an eu regulation it expands beyond the eu um and that can be in a variety of different ways whether or not it's just you know it's easier to have a single set of policies globally or as close to globally as you can have um and so it becomes sort of more of a global regulation but also there are other countries uh around the world sort of you know, follow on and put in place regulations based on, you know, what is there. And we're seeing now like, you know, California with the CCPA and CCPR sort of copying the GDPR. And we're seeing things with, with, with other regulations, you know, making their way around the world. Um, and we've seen that with, with other European regulations, you know, there was a study recently about how, uh, NetsDG, which is the German sort of mini DSA, I, I want to say. I don't know if that's fair or not, but but uh, is is kind of a DSA like bill for Germany um, that you know other countries have sort of copied that, um, but often it's like you know authoritarian countries using the same language of the NetsDG to you know to 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 censor things or to, you know, stomp out fake news, which is like news critical of the government or things like that. You know, so I I have this, this sort of larger concern, one, just about like DSA rules, not just being applied in, in, in the U uh, in the EU, but also about other countries sort of taking the same language from the DSA and using them, you know, in places that don't have the EU court of justice and don't have such commitments to human rights as, as the EU might. And is, is there any concern there? 
Yes, definitely. Um, and there are a number of different articles that I have uh, of the DSA that I have my eye on as potentially being really appealing to authoritarian regimes to kind of copy and paste into their own legal uh, legal codes, or just to point to as like, look, yes, Europe is legitimizing this. Right. Um, one of those is in a kind of boring article on legal representatives. Um, there's an article, I believe it's now numbered Article 13, uh, that requires um, online services to have a legal representative in Europe. And, you know, there's understandable reasons for that. It's, uh, you know, you want to make sure that these services are respecting European law or respecting the rights of European citizens. But this provision, it's not just asking for like a registered agent for service of process sort of thing. Right that employee has like personal liability for failures of the company that they work for to comply with the DSA. And that kind of, that is a kind of legal construct that in other yeah. uh, conditions we've called hostage provisions, <laughs> right. right? It's the idea that you have a person in country, whether it's Russia or India or France, who can be sent to prison right. or fined or otherwise personally prevailed upon to ensure that the company does what the government regulator wants it to do. And in Europe, hopefully that would just be apply, but you know, the actual rules and regulations is set out in the law and the DSA. But in Russia, it has turned into a lot of different kinds of pressures on um, tech companies to restrict speech, to hand over user data, you know, the, the risks this is this is not a hypothetical risk by any yeah. chance. This is a tactic that we've already seen a lot of com countries use. And now we unfortunately have this element of the DSA that sort of gives the European human rights and rule of law kind of nod of approval to um, that is uh, to me was a, a big disappointment to see that stay all the way through uh, all the negotiating around the legislation. Yeah, that, that's that's a huge one, right? I mean, we've definitely seen that already, and and you know, I I know that that's in place in in other countries has been abused, and India, you know, for example, um, has that with their with their IT rules and has used that to threaten all sorts of uh, you know jailing Twitter employees, for example, for not taking down content critical of the government, and Brazil has gone after employees of companies and arrested employees of companies. So, um, yeah, sort of legitimizing that seems, seems really, really problematic as well. I think Mike, your, your question, I think initially kind of gestured both toward this very problematic direction right. that Emma has described, but, but there's also the sort of global ramifications and spillover of, of the DSA that might be positive sure. or might be, you know, so somewhere in between. So, I, you know, I think some things like the transparency measures required by the DSA, that's going to generate information that is useful to people all over the world. Um, it will also, if we look at it as a, a imbalanced burden on very small companies, it will right. affect competition for people who are hoping for competition and, and innovation and new rivals to incumbents all over the world. So the upside and the downside, you know, might be felt everywhere. The new rules, you know, requiring platforms to publish their speech rules really clearly and have, you know, better notice and appeal proceedings, they may well roll out those or a flavor of them all over the world. So that might be, um, you know, an upside for people everywhere. Um, and then there's the question of, you know, will governments emulate this? If we get governments 
in multiple jurisdictions having slightly different rules for the details of notice and takedown and notifications and how to count things in transparency reports and so forth. That sounds like chaos, yeah. like not useful to anyone really and wildly burdensome to to companies. Um, so I think there's a real mix of things that can be upsides and, and things that can be downsides for the rest of us coming out of yeah, this. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I've had this discussion elsewhere where it's like the transparency stuff is is somewhat frustrating to me. And I don't know the specifics of the transparency uh, features of the DSA, but like, and, and Daphne, you know, because I've spoken about it with directly with you a few times where it's just like you know, the transparency is like I, I, I'm obviously like a huge supporter of transparency in general and and believe companies should be more transparent on a, on a whole bunch of factors and I think that would be really useful um, you know just for people having the information and for a variety of other points as well but every time I see sort of mandated transparency requirements coming out of regulations I don't think that they're particularly helpful because often they're, you know, forcing transparency where transparency doesn't make sense or putting in place rules that limit how, how much you can, you know, how much you can do or putting tremendous burdens on smaller providers, you know, again, like, you know, going back to my own situation where like as a very small company where it's like, you know, how much transparency do I need when I'm mostly just dealing with spammers where it's like, you know, I, I don't want to have to track how many, how many spam messages I'm deleting on a daily basis. That's a huge waste of my time. I mean, deleting the spam is already a waste of my time. Having to keep track of how much I'm deleting is, is a, is a, is another waste of time. So there's like, like I get the the value of transparency and having more transparency and maybe even some standardization of the transparency, but again, that gets to the fact that like all these platforms are also different and what transparency means for one is very different than what transparency means for another. And just the burden on, on smaller providers, um, you know, is, is a potentially big deal. So like, I, I worry about all of that, you know, even the parts that you say are like potentially upsides, right? <laughs> I, I, absolutely. And I think there's a lot in the DSA that's like, really experimental. Right. You know, it, it's things that people like me have suggested over the years and civil society groups have supported, but nobody's really tried to implement it. Um, and I sort of wish there could be some more iterative process where like you maybe try it out in one country <laughs> or just try it out on the biggest platforms first. <laughs> See right. how, it, which I, I testified to Parliament and suggested that and uh, they didn't take me up on that one. But, you know, see see how it plays out in, in practice for a, a smaller version <laughs> before expanding but, it but so that, broadly. I mean, that gets to something that, and, and I've, I've raised this in different contexts before, but I think it's relevant here where it's like, you know, the way that, that companies work, and this is on all different aspects of the way that, that, that different companies work, but, but certainly true in the like trust and safety content moderation thing is that it's, it's constant, constantly evolving and constantly adaptive, right? Cause you have different challenges and you have different, you know, you have dynamic actors who are changing their own things that they're doing and you have to constantly adapt and change as well. And, and I, the biggest fear I have in a lot of this is that it assumes that's not true. And, and, and so like, that the regulatory approach is like here's a problem here's a solution and that's it whereas like the the way that companies 
deal with things, especially challenges around trust and safety, is that you have to be constantly changing and constantly adapting. And and laws are not designed that way. And so there's there's just this inherent conflict between like trust and safety, dynamic, adapting, et cetera, and laws, which like will be in place for many, many years, create a huge mess, and then maybe 20 years down the road, we're going to revisit these laws based on the problems that we saw from what's happened over the, over the past decade. So I, I have a, a, this sort of larger concern about that those two things are just inherently in conflict. And there's no way, you know, unless the, the legal regulatory process changes to, the, to a point that it recognizes how to be adaptive, which, which creates its own problems too, because then you don't have like clear rules and instructions and everything we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast as well. That that I don't I don't know how you do that. <laughs> yeah, so I had a um, a blog post about the the DSA in Verfassungsblog, which is a German it's English language, but uh, um, a blog about European law making a, a version of this point that like these are organic evolving complex systems for dealing with organic evolving complex human behavior right. and subjecting them to such an industrialized model where every detail is set forth based on preconceived expectations you're going to run into both a bunch of inefficiencies and just it turns out you asked for the wrong thing and ways in which the innately you know an industrialized version of the system can't adapt to to the way things are working on the Around. A couple of oh, actually, I'll also mention that that blog post links out to a chart, uh, Google Spreadsheets that I'm in the process of updating that shows for every article of the DSA which size company has to comply <laughs> with it. So, like for the having a legal representative on the ground, it's everyone, no matter how small you are, you're supposed to have that. Mm-hmm. For issuing these pretty complex transparency reports, it's everyone over 250 employees and, and 10 million euros turnover. Um, for the, one of the particularly experimental articles is it's now numbered Article 21. This is the one that says if you've had a content moderation dispute with a user and they don't like the outcome, they can take the platform to like an outside alternative dispute resolution yeah. provider and relitigate whatever they disagree with about a content moderation decision. Uh, and the platform always pays its own costs. And if the the user wins, then the platform pays those costs too. And that funds the operation of the bodies that that provide this moderation or this mediation service. That's wild. Yeah. Like that, I understand the basis for it, which is it's supposed to incentivize better decision making in the first place by platforms. Um, but this definitely strikes me as something where experimenting on just some giant platforms first, or just in one country first to see how that goes, uh, might have been useful because I can imagine it going wrong in a number of ways. Yeah, there are so many institutions and kind of new bodies that the DSA is going to require to be set up. There's new sort of institutions across the member states that will at least need to be identified and, and empowered to be digital services coordinators. There are things like this out-of-court dispute settlement body or bodies that pretty much don't exist currently because that's not really what like the Facebook oversight board is set up to do necessarily. Um, So I think some things we can expect out of the DSA is like a, a lot of development in within the European kind of regulatory infrastructure of like new bodies and institutions and trying to figure out how exactly to administer this law, but also 
just I'm anticipating an explosion of the kind of compliance industry around all of this. You know, people who are themselves going through the regulation and not just trying, like we're all doing, trying to figure out like, what does this mean? And how is it going to affect free expression and access to information online? But like, what's the business opportunity here? What kinds of compliant DSA compliance services can I provide? Can I be the plug and play transparency report provider for a bunch of small micro enterprises who right. have no other way to even think about complying with this? Can I provide, you know, these kinds of um, content moderation services and tell people I'll help them handle reporting their statement of reasons to the part of the commission that's supposed to collect all of the statements of reasons <laughs> about every content removal decision across every platform in the entire EU? Like, what good is it going to do? I don't know, but I'm sure somebody's going to figure out how to make a buck off of that. And so that I think is the a real wild card in what the DSA will actually mean in practice, because there will be a lot of industry around how to comply with it, not just like in-house at a very large online platform trying to figure it out, but a lot of potential growth in sort of compliance as a service providers. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're going to have all sorts of bad actors figuring out how they can exploit the mechanisms in the DSA for, you know, targeting different speech for content removal um, or account deactivation. How can you just, you know, could you harass a small service with enough of these appeals to this out of court dispute settlement body no. that Daphne was talking about that even if they keep kind of winning, they still spend so much of their budget on responding to these demands that, uh, you know, that they can't make a go of it. It's, there's, uh, it's not necessarily all doom and gloom, but there are some really big pitfalls that haven't been discussed nearly enough in, in my view, in the, the kind of realistic take on what will implementation of this actually and, look like. Yeah. And, and I mean, the other thing is like, how, how does it, you know, how do you deal with, with models like Reddit, um, you know, where, where you have subreddits with, with, each subreddit has its own rules and its own moderators and, and stuff like d does each subreddit have to have a representative in Europe? <laughs> like <laughs> how does, how does that work? Uh, or like, you know, discord servers or, you know, all of these different things and, and different models. I'm thinking like, you know, or people setting up Mastodon, their own Mastodon instance for, for like a, you know, a, a Twitter like experience and federating with others, you know, um, how, how does the, like, I could see all sorts of questions about how does, how does that apply? Does it even consider these ideas, uh, and, and these, you know, alternative ideas and, and like the whole point of like Mastodon is people can set up their own servers with their own rules. Um, are they going to have to go to these ADR panels if, if, you know, like they set up a rule that says no Nazis and a Nazi wants to be on their, their, their Mastodon instance. Like I, 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 I feel like there are all sorts of really, really big questions about how that, how this all works. And, and I'll be honest with you, you know, when I started this, I was hoping that some of those questions had been thought of, but it feels like they haven't been. Well, I think at least for the Mastodon server okay. question, they would probably fall under the small and micro enterprise exclusion okay. that I believe means that they, they don't have to do the out of court dispute settlement body piece of the regulations. They may still need to provide some kind of transparency reporting once a year. Um, but there, so there is, yeah, I, do, I don't want to mischaracterize right. the DSA. There has been some thought around, especially with the idea of like very small service providers ensuring that 
parts of the regulation and some of the most onerous or sort of the, the most processy parts of the regulation do not apply to them. Um, I certainly don't want to discourage people from operating websites right. on their own or, you know, running their own Mastodon instance. Um, but it is, there are aspects of this that do apply to literally all providers of intermediary services. So not just content hosts, but search engines and lots of different parts of um, infrastructure. So it's, yeah, it's compli- it, yeah. running a service and not thinking about compliance at all, you know, it still may be feasible if you if you aren't in Europe and you don't intend to go to Europe and right. you feel pretty confident you can fly under the radar. Um, but especially for any services in Europe and, you know, people trying to run um, small services in Europe, there's going to be a, a set of initial kind of qualifications and competencies that you will have to have in order to be very confident that you're on the right side of the law. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, getting back to what you said before, I'm assuming that, you know, as with the GDPR, right, as soon as the GDPR went into effect, we were hit like daily by people who were offering GDPR compliance services. And I imagine that we'll, we'll see a whole industry grow up around that as well for the DSA. Um, yeah. And then as a, you know, free expression advocate who spent a lot of the past 13 years trying to get existing companies and just like the, you know, the content host directly to think about how do they run those systems and services in a way that respects people's rights to expression and privacy right. and gives the best experience to users. That's now a whole other, like, we got to keep our eye on the compliance industry now too. You know, what are the standards yeah. that they're putting forward of like, here's your plug and play content policy and how to do reporting on it and how to run all your systems those might be uh, you know, op- optimized for different features yes. than ensuring the best respect of your users' human rights. Um, and, and so there's potentially a real loss to some of the, the gains and concepts yep. of you know, what are the, what's that relationship between internet users and the services that they use and what we've been able to try to get more companies to do as far as having more you know, having content policies that are better tailored to the actual needs and interests of their users and being more responsive to the different kinds of abuse or harassment that users face on their services, we might see a kind of leveling effect um, and and return to more kind of generic approaches to to this if that makes for an easier compliance. Yeah. Uh, and and, and I, I worry about that aspect as well, just because like the experimentation and the differences between different platforms and different services and the way that they take different approaches and really trying to attract different communities, I think is, is a, is a nice thing about the internet. And I definitely do fear that when you have these kinds of situations, you, you lead to this world where, you know, I mean, people will talk about like best practices and I understand that and there's value in best practices, but that also leads to a homogenization of everything as well. And that, that could be a real loss also. Um, so this has gone longer than, than I originally thought, but there, and, and I don't feel like we've covered like probably half of the stuff that we could have covered or I wanted to cover. Um, but um, I, I wanted to feel more comfortable with where the dsa was <laughs> and i feel worse about where the dsa is we're not here to make you comfortable yeah. mike <laughs> oh gosh all right um but but I, I i do appreciate this uh this is this was really useful for me in sort of trying to understand like i assume there were there were problems with it just because every time i had looked at it in the past there were problems with it um 
I had hoped that the problems had been more dealt with <laughs> and I'm feeling like maybe they were not. Um, and that has me very nervous about where all I mean, I can say was. there, there were many problems that were dealt with in the <laughs> negotiation process. Like the, the original draft did look a lot worse than this. There, there have definitely been some gains and again, still some potential in the implementation implementation phase to really push for this idea of a sensible, thoughtful, realistic right. version of the DSA that doesn't, especially that doesn't punish smaller services that right. are just trying to figure out like <laughs> how to get by with this. Right. Uh, Daphne, any, any final thoughts from you <laughs> on all of this and anything to, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you don't have to make me feel better about it, but well, the, 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 the conversation's definitely making me feel tired. Um, but I, you know, I do think a, a lot of, um, thoughtful people will be participating in the process that is yet to come in Brussels. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, hopefully we will get good clarifications out of that. Um, and then internationally, I would just say, you know, precisely because there will be a lot of spillover effects from the DSA anyway. And because it's so experimental, to me, this is a reason for other countries to hit pause or work on legislation about something else that the DSA isn't going to just, you know, achieve for them through European power anyway. Uh, you know, and wait and see what happens and do DSA 2.0 a couple years down the line, correcting for what yeah. inevitable unintended consequences come out of this one. Yeah. I wish, I wish people would listen to that, but I, I have little faith that they will. <laughs> All right. Well. But you got to end on yeah, a note. <laughs> okay. Sure. All right. Well, anyways, uh, thanks. This has been really useful for me and trying to understand all this and think through all of the, the challenges and, and at least gives me a, a good framing with which to follow everything that does happen over the next year as, as it gets closer to actual, uh, actually going into effect. Um, and, and thank you both for spending all the time understanding this that, that I didn't do <laughs> and then for, for coming on the podcast to, to, to explain it all to me and to scare me. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Thanks Halloween. for having <laughs> <That's right. laughs> All right. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned up front, uh, th well, thanks for everyone for listening as well. Normally I said we'll be back next week, but in this case we will not be, uh, but the podcast will be back in a couple of weeks. So thanks again to everyone, and we will be back soon. Grab a shovel and dig up the tack. Uh.